Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California's Representative Zoe Lofgren led yesterday's hearing of the House Committee investigating January 6th, focusing on how ex-President Trump knew he'd lost the 2020 election, was told so by multiple people in his orbit, and still told the American public he'd won. Lofgren also showed how Trump and his allies used the lie of a stolen election to make money, hundreds of millions of dollars, from small donors for an election defense fund that didn't really exist. So not only was there the big lie, there was the big ripoff. Lofgren joins us as we recap the hearings and get your reactions. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ego and greed pushed ex-President Trump and his allies to knowingly spread the lie of a stolen election that led directly to the deadly violence on January 6th. That's what the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol sought to show yesterday as one by one witnesses in sworn testimony shared how they told the president he'd lost the election and that fraud claims were meritless. Here's former Attorney General Bill Barr. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. But this stuff was a moneymaker, as the committee revealed that Trump and his surrogates raised $250 million from small donors eager to overturn what they believed was a stolen election. San Jose Congressmember Zoe Lofgren led much of the proceeding yesterday and joins Forum Now. Thank you for being with us, Representative Lofgren. Of course. Good morning. So you wrapped up yesterday's hearing calling the big lie that the 2020 election had been stolen a big ripoff as well. What did you mean by that? Well, the uh, president and his people sent out... um, massive amounts of uh, email solicitations for funds uh, saying that they would go, the funds would go to an official election defense fund, which as it turns out, doesn't exist. Uh, They repeated the, uh, the claims of fraud in the election, which they knew were false and uh, raised hundreds of millions of dollars from people who believe them and then use the money. Uh, They didn't use it to defend the election. Uh, They used it for other purposes. I think uh, that's not the way to do things, but that's the way they did it. Uh, The lie uh, that they 
perpetrated in these emails, not only raise the money, but also help disseminate uh, the, the meritless claims of fraud. Uh, and many of the people who donated money also ended up coming to the January 6th uh, riot. So it was not just a money raiser, although it was that, but it was also a way to disseminate the lies. Defrauding donors is a crime. With this revelation, you've certainly given prosecutors at the Department of Justice another avenue uh, to investigate possible crimes. Do you support your committee, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, making a criminal referral to the DOJ? Well, we're, we're not saying that the fundraising was a crime. It was uh, a grift. Um, but um, it's for someone else to make that determination whether it violates any statute. Um, I will say, you know, there is no actual procedure. You know, people were saying criminal referral. There is no actual procedure for that. Um, you know, the committee could send a letter to the Department of Justice you know, giving them our view and sending information. And we actually haven't even had a discussion of that yet. Uh, I'm sure we will discuss that at some point. Uh, I doubt that that discussion will occur until after the hearings have concluded. And maybe we will, uh, really, though it's the Department of Justice that has to make that determination. We're mm -hmm. a legislative committee. Well, do you support uh, sending that letter Making oh, I don't know. We, recommendation have, with the evidence have, that you've gathered to date that you're presenting. As to I say, you? we have not yet had that discussion as a committee, um, and we might do that. I, I don't know, but we need to wait for that discussion. The committee has been—it's a very good process we use uh, to thoroughly discuss, you know, the pros and cons of every decision, and we listen to each other. Unlike a lot of committees that yell at each other, we actually listen to each other sometimes. I'll persuade someone, sometimes someone will persuade me. So we have yet to go through that process, and I'm sure we will, and we'll come up with a plan moving forward, just as we have in every other instance. So, Representative Lochran, you're saying that you personally haven't made up your mind yet? No, I haven't. What are you weighing in your decision in terms of concerns about going forward with Honestly, a recommendation I like that? This is not something I've thought a lot about at this point, honestly. I'm so focused on getting the information out to the public, making sure that what we're reporting has been thoroughly investigated and is completely truthful and accurate. That's the mode that we're in now uh, for the next several weeks. Um, you know, it may be, I think one thing I am committed is making sure that the Department of Justice have, has every piece of information that we have compiled, understanding that really it's their decision, not ours, on whether to prosecute. Uh, do you call that a referral? I don't know, but I think they're entitled to all the information that we have compiled. No, I see. I, I guess I ask because I've seen reporting that there are concerns about, for example, recommending criminal charges further inflaming a very, very polarized country. And I wonder if that was a consideration for you. You mentioned something interesting, I think, in an NPR well, interview about saying say, that you have... Yes, yes, go right ahead. The, the reporting has been completely 
inaccurate. I mean, some of what you see, you go, where did they get that? I was just talking to the chairman this morning. It's like, we never had a discussion on this and they're reporting well, the committee is divided. No, we're not divided. We just haven't gotten to that section of our deliberations yet. So you can't always believe the, um, uh, the rumors. And, you know, I think people are looking for, there's division. There hasn't been any division and we just haven't gotten to that phase yet. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. And I also want to invite listeners if they have any quick reflections or thoughts they want to share with the Congress member who has been leading and led yesterday's hearing of the January 6th committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. You can post those on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email forum at kqed.org. What I was saying was uh, an interview that you gave to NPR, you said something Interesting. You said you have some sympathy for voters who believe that the election was stolen. Why do you hold that sympathy? What do you mean by sympathy? Well, I mean, when you take a look at the campaign that the, the president engaged in, the former president, to basically take some information that was false and that he knew to be false, that the election had been stolen, um, you know, people, there are people, and I'm not among them, but there are people in our country who really are big fans of Donald Trump. They voted for him. He was their president. They believed him. And what he was telling them was not true. There are people who came on January 6th and are now in, in jail or in prison because they believe what the president told them. There are people whose wallets are a little bit lighter because they believe what the president told them. And I guess I have some sympathy, you know, not for the Proud Boys who seem to be a criminal gang as far as I can discern, but there were people who, uh, who liked the president and who believed what he said, and he, uh, he conned them. Can you talk about how central the peaceful transfer of power between administrations is to a functioning democracy? Absolutely. Uh, you know, in our first hearing, we had uh, a handwritten letter, a copy of a handwritten le letter that Abraham Lincoln had prepared for his cabinet. And they all had to sign it because he thought he was going to lose his reelection. Uh, and he thought that when he did, uh, that the uh, successful candidate would uh, give in to the to the South. And the letter basically said, I'm paraphrasing, uh, that uh, his obligation was to respect what the voters decided, even though, you know, that would be a catastrophe, that he was prepared to accept the will of the voters. When George Washington uh, decided not to become a king, but to transfer power as the Constitution provided, it set the stage for hundreds of years of peaceful democracy. In fact, Donald Trump is the first president in American history to step away from that constitutional obligation to peacefully transfer power to the winner of an election. And it's very dangerous. I want to read a tweet from listener Wallace who writes, Trump got away with years of being a criminal and a fraud. He will continue to get away with it. Democrats don't have the unity of voice and are way too timid. Their messaging is horrible. What is your reaction to Wallace? 
well, I don't know who he is, but what I'm doing is telling the truth as I know it. I'm working very hard to get the truth. Um, I'm just aware that um, there are things that are in the power of the Congress and there are things that are not within the power of the Congress. The Congress is a legislative body. Under the constitution, we have no authority to indict anyone uh, or to prosecute anyone. That is a function in the constitution of the executive branch. So that's the truth, that's the constitution, and I live within the constitution. Well, Tina tweets, thank you, Rep. Lofgren, for all your hard work and bringing all this information to the public. Your work is invaluable. What is the takeaway, Representative Lofgren, you want for the American people based on the evidence and facts that you present? What new ground could we see in future committee hearings? Well, we're going to continue to go through basically what happened leading up to the January uh, 6th event. Um we're going to, I think, be able to prove that the president, as, as Liz Cheney said um, in the first hearing, the morning of January 6th, then President Trump intended to stay president, even though he'd lost the election. And I hope that that stark fact will, will rekindle the enthusiasm, the infection, uh, the affection, um, the commitment that people across the political spectrum have for our constitutional system and for our system that allows the people of the United States, we the people, to choose the president of the United States, not elites, not political insiders, the people themselves vote and their vote decides who's going to be president. Anything you can tell us about why tomorrow's hearing was postponed? It w- It's really more a scheduling issue, uh, not only witnesses, uh, but also the some technical glitches so it's not a it's not a significant issue california democrat zoe lofgren who represents california's 19th district a member of the january 6th select committee thank you so much for joining us representative lofgren thank you very much and we will have more as we recap the second day of testimony from the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. We'll analyze it as well, and we'll get your thoughts on what you are learning and what impact you hope it'll have. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email them forum at kqed.org. You can call us, 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
As we await the Supreme Court's opinion in Dobbs, which, if unchanged from the draft leaked last month, will take away America's constitutional right to an abortion. We want to hear from you. How are you preparing for the ruling? You can email forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300. We're talking this hour about the findings of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th and what they presented yesterday. And joining us for that is Claudia Grisales, a congressional reporter for NPR. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU Law School, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and former special counsel for the Department of Justice. Ryan Goodman, really glad to have you on as well. Thanks for having me on. So, Claudia, I'm going to start with you. The focus of Monday's hearing was really about former President Trump and the extent to which he attempted to remain in power, despite all the evidence indicating that he'd lost the election. Can you talk about the major witnesses uh, at the hearing yesterday? Right. So we had some very explosive testimony that was shared by video from witnesses who had already appeared before the committee. That includes Bill Stepien, who was Trump's campaign manager in late 2020. And he probably provided some of the more um, compelling testimony, if you will, about the attempts to get the message across to the president that the election was not stolen, not to claim a victory. Another witness we heard from is former Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, also offered very specific recollections of these attempts over three meetings, for example, of trying to get across to the president that there was no evidence of widespread election fraud. And then we had some witnesses who did appear before the committee as well, who had seen from their vantage point uh, evidence of attempts by the administration to try and tamp down uh, efforts to be transparent and show that there was no widespread fraud or, uh, for example, the call on election night that, it, for example, the state of Arizona did go for President Biden. And so these are just some of the examples of, of some of the witnesses and what we heard in this hearing that brought a grander picture in what was an attempt by the Trump administration led by the former president to try and install this effort of overturning the results of the election in 2020. Mm-hmm. Professor Goodman, who has emerged for you as the strongest witness for the committee and potentially for prosecutors, I guess, if they pursue this? So I think over the course of the two hearings, the strongest uh, witness is a bit of a surprise, it's Bill Barr. Um, Mm. And he seems to be providing some very detailed statements about being a direct witness to having tried to tell uh, President Trump that this was over uh, and uh, direct evidence about uh, President Trump's state of mind at the time. And it's all very damaging, um, very incriminating uh, to Trump because it's very clear evidence coming out of his own attorney general that he was well aware and made well aware that the claims of election fraud were false. Yes, and there were so many claims of fraud. I don't know if, Claudia, you could just give us a quick overview of some of the biggest ones that particularly President Trump had been putting out there for a really long time, those months between the election and January 6th. Right. One of the more detailed 
detailed um, recollections that the panel offered in terms of the evidence that they uncovered was that the former president raised $250 million in that eight-week period between Election Day and January 6th from donors. A lot of these are small donors through emails that were talking about this Uh, stop the steal effort. This is what the campaign shifted to after the former president lost the election. And as you heard Lofgren earlier talking about how this shift was made to keep the money, to keep the money flowing in, even after the loss happened. And so this is the 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 claims that go into questions of mm. fraud, selling these false claims of, of widespread election fraud in an attempt to draw more donations for the Trump campaign. Yeah, for example, things like claiming that there were boxes coming into a voting center uh, full of votes that were fraudulent or full of votes that could have changed the outcome of the election. Uh, So many things like Dominion voting machines, Ryan Goodman, that the voting systems had been tampered with uh, and that people who had put in for Trump or selected Trump ended up having that vote go toward Biden. Can you talk a little bit about the Dominion allegations? Right. So the Dominion allegations, you know, this idea that there's this grand conspiracy involving the voting machines is one of the issues that Bill Barr spoke about and said that it was just kind of cockamamie, the ideas that Trump was saying to him and he told the president as much. And that's happening in December. And then even after he tells the president that, then Trump goes out and, you know, to the public uh, repeats these Um, conspiracies. And it's also remarkable because it comes after we now know that Trump's own campaign had an internal memo in which they um, determined that the allegations that were being made about Dominion were false. So, you know, all of this just pointing again and again to an avalanche of information that uh, Trump was receiving, uh, that he should not have been even saying these things out loud, uh, let alone trying to Yes. Well, let's hear a little bit from Barr talking about his reaction to the Dominion claims and the fact that Trump was persisting in putting them forward. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with uh, with uh, he's become detached from reality. And I want to play another cut from Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, who was detailing how they had gone through each of these allegations that uh, the president said were of voter fraud and tried to tell him that they were, in fact, meritless. This is Richard Donahue. I tried to, again, put this in perspective and to try to put it in very clear terms to the president. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. We've looked at Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada. We're doing our job. Much of the info you're getting is false. So 
Ryan Goodman, can you talk about the legal significance of two things? One of the things is that the president is being told repeatedly that he lost the election and that these uh, allegations were false. One of the things you don't hear so much in that Donahue Cup, but what was mentioned in the hearing is that he also, Donahue says, sort of seemed uninterested when Donahue would say that they were proved to be meritless allegations of voter fraud and would just move on to ticking off the next allegation. That's right. So there are, in a certain sense, many roads to criminal liability for President Trump. One of them is if he was aware that he had lost the election and these allegations of election fraud were false. Because if he knew that, um, just one of the you know, federal criminal statutes that will apply to him is that he therefore had corruptly interfered with the proceedings to try to pressure Pence to overturn the election even knowing that he had lost the election um, is the you know quintessential definition of corrupt, and that's part of the criminal statute. So that's what a lot of this is pointing to. And I agree with you. I think that you know the other Donahue statements that you reference, where each time they actually show the president that he's wrong, he just moves on to the next allegation. Is another statement by Bill Barr where he says uh, that the president quote never there was quote never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were end quote that's a that's the level of knowledge that the criminal law would seize upon that he had no interest in the actual evidence as to whether or not there were there was fraud he was just going on the basis of what he could spin as this conspiracy and because sorry because then he uh, wouldn't genuinely believe he wouldn't be genuinely believing that there was election fraud, because these things should have made a difference to someone who who genuinely believed it. Is that what That's you're right. saying? That's I, right. And he's not even having an interest in the actual facts as to whether or not there is election fraud. He just wants to say that there's election fraud. It all seems to amount to, to just that. Um, and that's important you know, for federal prosecutors. And just to flag something, it's also very important for the Georgia um, prosecutor. And as we've already mentioned so far, you know, a number of these uh, statements made by Donahue and others are actually specific to Georgia. Uh, so I think that it has another place in which this all might end up touching down in the uh, criminal justice system. We're talking with Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU Law School, and Claudia Grisales, a congressional reporter for NPR. You, our listeners, are joining the conversations with your thoughts and questions to what you're hearing and also what impact you think or hope the hearings will have. What would you like to see as the next steps, potentially, with regard maybe to the Department of Justice following up on these hearings, either with investigations or maybe even indictments. You can share your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You can call us, 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. Brian writes, unfortunately, we seem to have a culture where accountability is diminished. For all those in the Senate and Congress who repeat the big lie and ignore the reality of sedition, they need to face an accounting, but they likely won't. They learn that our criminal justice system is to be played. Claudia, we understand that uh, the former president issued a response to the testimony yesterday, a 12-page one. What can you tell us about that, what he, he said in that? So, yes, very extensive statement, 12 pages. It talks about, in part, how 
uh, concerns that the panel, that Democrats should be focusing on other urgent issues facing the country. There were also some specific complaints about witness testimony that was gathered, for example, that he was claiming that some witnesses were not allowed to record their own testimony. But from our understanding, those depositions, and this is our understanding from the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, those depositions, uh, those details, those transcripts from those appearances to testify before the panel were shared with witnesses. And if you look at the vast majority of the witnesses that the panel did interview, this is about, this is more than actually a thousand witnesses now, about a hundred of them faced subpoenas. So the vast majority appeared voluntarily. This was their choice to appear before the committee. And so, yes, the former president did issue a very extensive, long list of concerns with the committee, with Democrats. Uh, but some, however, the committee chairman last night, Benny Thompson, told us have been addressed in a number of ways. Let me go to Henry in San Carlos. Hi, Henry. Hi, uh, I'm calling just to, to ask because in my experience, I'm, I'm 26, so I have limited experience with watching these, these sorts of indictments unfold. But it strikes me that the big question is whether the, these things could be wrapped up in time to preclude Trump from running for president in 2024, mm. whether whether he would actually be able to start a campaign and garner some sort of momentum and whether... I mean, uh, if even it comes to November 2024 and things are in progress, could he still be an active uh, candidate for president? Thank you. Uh, Henry, thanks. Ryan Goodman, if if Trump was indicted, how long would that take? Would it preclude him from running again, as Henry wants to know? So there's nothing that formally precludes anybody from running even under indictment. <laughs> but of course, you could imagine that the American public might reject uh, somebody under those circumstances. Um, I think that the Justice Department's criminal investigation is going to be long and grueling, and if it winds its way to President Trump, that will be quite some time from now. But I don't, you know, think it would be beyond the um, time before the 2024 election if it does happen. But I do think that the Georgia um, situation is probably going to move ahead more quickly. It's a much more simple, straightforward criminal case. And, you know, I would actually have my eyes on Georgia. Uh, so, so I think that he might be under indictment there uh, within the coming months. It's Yes. Long. Summarize that for us quickly, if you would, and why you think that's probably the strongest, potentially the strongest case. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you look at Georgia's criminal law, there's a law about soliciting um, election fraud. It's that remarkable January 2nd phone call where Trump calls the Secretary of State of Georgia and says, you know, find me these this exact number of votes. And he also pretty clearly pressures the Secretary of State with prosecution, saying, you know, this will be illegal if you don't do that. We have the entire audio. Now we have all of this testimony from the senior leadership of the Justice Department telling us that they told Trump that he lost in Georgia, that they told Trump, you know, the suitcases we mentioned earlier in the show, that there was no there there, that it was not true. That's what you know. Richard Donahue said, that he said repeatedly to the president before the January 2nd phone call. And there's a very um, uh, great prosecutor, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, in uh, Fulton County, 
And she has said uh, publicly that she will follow the evidence and, uh, and it seems as though she will. So I do think that that's the one area that I think people should think about as well as a possibility for accountability. Is Trump's intent material here? As so, much as it is saying some of the other things like uh, conspiracy to impede right uh, government functions and so on? So in Georgia, um, his awareness of what he's being told would be sufficient, I would think, um, mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. that he's pressuring uh, officials to violate their duties to count the ballots. Um, and there's some, you know, air of that that's a little bit of a gray area, so that one might say, well, what if he actually thought he did win? Um, but still, I think that uh, the law would touch down on, even if you personally thought you win, if everybody's also telling you and all the courts are telling you it's over and you lost, and then you're trying to pressure the state officials, um, that seems pretty uh, strong for a prosecutor, in fact, hard for a prosecutor to turn away from that kind of evidence when we're talking about these laws. And I'm just bracketing here, you know, other federal criminal laws that would apply to, for example, using a riot um, to instrumentalize it in order to try to delay certification in the election. So that's what I meant at the outset, that we don't have to necessarily go down the path of proving his knowledge and intent for all of the forms of uh, federal criminal liability that would attach. Yeah, you might be answering this listener Michael's question in Boston. Hi, Michael, go right ahead quickly, please. Yes. um, I'll first comment that Mr. Trump is not alone. Most of us have a great deal of difficulty believing in the inevitability of our own deaths, even though there's no more well-established fact than that. But Mr. Trump throughout his life has shown a complete inability to define true as anything except what makes him feel good. Um, And I, I just wonder about how you establish mens rea in someone who seemingly is unable to grasp the difference between objective fact and objective falsehood. Uh, Michael, thanks. And so, yes, if you want to just add to what you were saying, Ryan, because I think Michael's question gets to the heart of concerns around having to prove whether he believed what he was doing was wrong or knew that ahead of time. Yeah, um, I think that, to me, one of the clearest pieces of evidence that we saw on uh, yesterday's hearing is that Trump knew going into election night that there would be this quote-unquote red mirage. It would be the appearance, statistical appearance, that he was winning. And he uh, decided to go ahead and declare that he had won and that anything else was being stolen from him. I think that goes to show you he's a tactician and he knew exactly what he was doing. It was baseless. There's no basis on which he could say that he was actually winning. And he'd been told that by, we know, his own campaign manager, Bill Stepien. So I think that's the kind of evidence a jury would be convinced uh, by. We'll have more with Ryan Goodman of NYU and Claudia Grisales of NPR after the break and more with you, our listeners. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The second day of testimony from the January 6th hearing was yesterday. We're talking about what we learned. We're analyzing what we learned and looking ahead to what could happen next with Claudia Crisales, a congressional reporter for NPR, and Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU Law School, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and former special counsel for the Department of Defense. You, our listeners, are sharing your reflections from the hearings that you've been watching the last couple of days with more to come. Um, and the impact that you are hoping it will have, what do you want to see potentially prosecutors, federal prosecutors do in terms of follow-up? Let me go to caller Wayne in Hemet. Hi, Wayne. Hi. Um, thank you. Um, as far as looking ahead, um, well, first of all, I think, uh, unfortunately, Donald Trump has been probably the most divisive figure uh, in our country in history, uh, and it's tragic. Uh, we were already well, you know, divided, and he's made it so much worse. But our, probably our best hope is a, a prosecution and a conviction in Georgia uh, mm. for some type of voter interference, uh, voting interference, election interference. Uh, I don't believe the DOJ will or can do anything uh, without causing major dis- society uh, disruptions. Um, so uh, it's just a really tragic that. The Republicans who knew better uh, did not impeach him when they had the chance um, because they should have nipped this in the bud. Thank you. Sure. Wayne, thank you for sharing your reflection on this. A couple of other questions we're getting. Catherine writes, I would like to know where the, quote, campaign donations received from these small donors went. Is the institution or institutions under any legal requirements to freeze these until they're returned to the donors? Are federal investigators allowed to investigate the how and where is the $250 million? And Ron writes, does the group's fundraising constitute a RICO effort? It was a coordinated effort to fraud people. Ryan Goodman, what are your thoughts in terms of what criminal charges could stem from what the committee presented toward the end of the hearing with regard to the $250 million for an election defense fund that didn't exist? So um, it definitely, you know, it looks, smells and tastes like um, a crime um, and it's wire, it would be wire fraud. Um, you can't, you know, tell people you're going to ask them for money for X and then give it to yourself for why. And um, I think it's so, it might be so clear that it really does force the Justice Department to look into it and tax authorities to look into it. And yes, RICO potentially, but also wire forward as a federal crime. And then, you know, there's another one as well, which is a civil case. Why, why not a class action suit on the part of the people who have been defrauded? Um, so I think that there, this might actually cut through some of the information bubbles in a certain sense. Um, for people to understand what happened and that they may have been victims of a, you know, a grift. And uh, so, yes, I think federal law has a lot to say about this if the allegations prove true. Well, Jeremiah writes, I've been watching the hearings and find them enjoyable, but still can't help but feel like we're sleeping walk, we're sleepwalking into fascism. 
How can we get the Justice Department to wake up and take action and hold the plotters accountable? It feels like Biden's agenda is being held in check, and it is as if we can't move on and get past this moment of danger posed by the insurrectionists. And maybe we will have to allow them to return to power, which is all very unsettling. Uh, another listener, Kathy, writes, I'm wondering why members of the House and Senate who, quote, won their elections on the same ballots that Donald Trump lost have no issue being in their seats while insisting that the Trump votes were stolen from him. Claudia, are you getting any intelligence in terms of the kind of impact these hearings are having? We heard that there were some 20 million people who watched the two-hour hearing on Thursday. I'm not sure if you have the latest numbers for Monday as well. But are you hearing anything different in your reporting or seeing the the needle move in a different direction. Right. That wasn't a a very impressive number, the 20 million for that first hearing. I don't have the updated figure, but that first hearing and the viewership is, is very telling in terms of the interest it drew. Now, the panel was already facing an uphill battle in terms of getting their message across. Is this just an echo chamber that they're talking to? Are the folks who are watching already those who looked at January 6th? as an attack on the Capitol, an attack on democracy, or are folks who felt differently having any shifts in thinking or our hearts and minds being impacted here in terms of people who perhaps didn't believe before that an insurrection, an attempt uh, on uh, the Capitol, on the certification of the election's results for uh, the 2020 election uh, was made. And so that all remains to be seen. You know, of course, members on the committee, Democrats and, and the two sitting Republicans are hoping that they're reaching folks that they could not reach before with these kind of details. They're definitely using an interesting strategy here by telling the story, not mainly through their own voices, but through the voices of those who are members of Trump's inner circle. And that has a much more powerful impact. But time will tell if they're drawing in the folks that they really wanted to get to be paying attention and rethink what happened on January 6th and the ongoing threat that democracy faces moving forward. In terms of the presentation, you've noted that the committee, it's a bipartisan committee, though Democrats have get a lot of criticism for the way that they present or go after things. But you noted that the committee has consulted with a former news producer to try to make the messaging clearer, crisper, and to get people to pay attention. Are you seeing that having a difference? You've been at the hearings. Is the atmosphere different? Yeah, in terms of the storytelling, the way this narrative is unfolding, it's very different. You, I think I can tell there's an impact there just in terms of these very tight sound bites, the clips that we're getting from the depositions, they pack a punch in terms of what we're hearing, for example, from the former AG Bill Barr or a former key aide like Bill Stepien who advised the campaign. And then we here and there will hear from members of Trump's own family, Ivanka Trump, and and Jared Kushner talking about the challenges of trying to get across to the president as everybody else was desperately trying to do, as Stepien referred to on Team Normal, to try and stop this effort to continue with this, quote, stop the steal uh, machine. And so, yes, it seems like this is unfolding in a different way. And it does seem to have a, a pretty strong impact in terms of the message they're delivering so far. Well, let me go to caller Matt in Arinda. Hi, Matt. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Hello. Yep. Yeah. I just wanted to say that this 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 nonsense that uh, of Trump doesn't doesn't didn't know the election wasn't stolen is belied by the fact that he basically had the strategy from the beginning of the election cycle. Essentially, it was, if I lose, it's because it was stolen. I mean, this was just a strategy. It was just no uh, denying that he he, he uh, didn't know what was going on. This was this was completely planned. And you know, it's one thing. It, He's pretty transparent. He said, "If I lose, it's rigged," and that and that's exactly what what happened after he did lose. So, you know, he's he's he he can't deny that he used that as a defense, some some kind of that he's deranged and didn't understand. He knew exactly what he was doing. Mm. Still does. Well, well, so, anyway. yeah, Matt. Thanks, uh, Ryan Goodman thinking about what Matt's saying, and also what Claudia just said before that about team normal. If there was a team normal, there was also a team not normal. <laughs> You've got Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, right? Advising yeah. the president to do certain things. Could he lean on that? Could Trump lean on that as a legal defense that he was believing his advisors? Because even if they were not necessarily giving him legitimate information, um, he was believing them. I mean, I think that's what he would try to say. Like, hey, my you know personal attorney who was the former mayor of New York was telling me X, Y, and Z. I think he would try that. I think that would be then up to the jury to decide what they think. But I also think the caller seizes on something in a way that I think is really important, uh, which is in some regards, I actually think the discussion that the the national conversation that's been having about this issue is a bit misframed because it's about, you know, did Trump believe it or not when he was yes. told that it, it was fraud? I actually think Donald J. Trump created and manufactured the idea of fraud. It's not like whether or not he believed the things that were being told to him. And as the caller says, you know, this fantastic reporting that was done on November 1st and then after the election by Jonathan Swan at Axios, in which he had several people telling him that this exactly was Trump's plan. He had planned for weeks in advance to announce on election night that he had won, even if he lost, uh, based on the red mirage, the statistical uh, creation of this idea that the Republican is winning on election night if you stop the voting right then, or stop the counting right then. So, yeah, it does seem as though um, that is, you know, a better way of thinking about what happened here. I think that's the true story of what happened here. And then the last point would just be, the Justice Department will have even greater powers to find the truth if they go after it, because they have subpoena powers and all the rest and wiretapping and all the rest, uh, where they will be able to determine, um, I think, to the same level of accuracy, let's just say, as uh, Jonathan Swan, as to what uh, Trump plans were uh, going into uh, election night and the rest and, and then how the rest of it unfolded. Do you have any sense of what the DOJ is thinking about? It's been painted as a very careful, or at least Attorney General Merrick Garland has been, one who is very sensitive to the political fallout, so on. Do you have any sense of, of what the DOJ is, is thinking or doing based on limited statements from prosecutors that we've heard? Yeah, I mean, I do think based on the track record that we've seen under Garland, with respect in particular to January 6th matters, is that he is passive and reactive and somewhat conservative lowercase c in the sense that he has done good things um, when pushed. So that's what I mean by reactive. Like a court said, 
can we pursue um, Representative um, Mo Brooks, for example, about his statements at the ellipse? Or is the Justice Department going to say that he's protected by a certain immunity? They respond, he's not protected by immunity. The Congress had asked, well, are you going to invoke executive privilege? The Justice Department earlier on, before the Select Committee met, said, no, we're not invoking executive privilege as a green light for all former senior Justice Department officials to testify. So time and again, it seems reactive, passive in a certain sense. I do think that the committee, therefore, might move the ball forward because it kind of forces the issue. This is an avalanche of information and uh, incriminating information. So I think that's one way in which it might move forward. And obviously, uh, you know, Attorney General Garland saw fit to say something publicly yesterday, trying to reiterate that they would follow the evidence wherever it leads, no matter the level at which uh, people are responsible. And he also made a point of saying, even if they weren't there inside the Capitol, essentially. So maybe, um, but it's it's really unclear at this point. And if there were an investigation already ongoing at that level, I think we would know it. We're talking with Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU Law School, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and former special counsel for the Department of Defense. Also, Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter for NPR. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Liz writes, I would love to know how those who ignored subpoenas can get away with it. And when will we know who asked the president to be pardoned. There are co-conspirators in Congress who should be barred from office along with Trump. Finally, how can we publicize Fox's complicit behavior, even just that they are minimizing coverage of this? It makes me sick. Claudia, this uh, listener uh, said quite a few things, uh, especially the comments that Liz Cheney made on Thursday about how there were multiple Republicans who sought pardons, the fact that Thursday's hearing was not aired on Fox, and so on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about any anything related to that you might be learning about how the people, Republicans in Congress, who are currently kind of going along with this um, big lie, how they're faring or feeling? You know, the Republicans have, have really been disciplined in terms of their approach here. Those that are opposed to the panel and its investigation. Uh, more recently, they have focused on other issues facing the country, such as inflation, gas prices, shortages on baby formula. And their arguments outside of these hearings is that Democrats should be focused on those issues instead. For example, hold primetime hearings on those issues instead. Now, to go back, we should note that Republicans had initially blocked a bipartisan commission, a 9-11-style commission, to investigate the January 6th attack, and then the House moved to put together this bipartisan committee. It was supposed to be essentially evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did reject two of the picks that uh, the GOP leader, Kevin McCarthy, wanted on the panel. This is uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio. Another member was Jim Banks. And so with that, McCarthy pulled back all those picks, and that meant Pelosi was left with appointing her own Republicans, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, to the committee. And so it, it for Republicans, it's tricky. They are not having their say in large part during these hearings, 
with the subpoenas that were issued, with the approach of the investigation. So we're not hearing a lot from them during these committee hearings or when the committee has shared their findings so far. And we will not hear from them when a final report is issued by this panel later this year. But that said, they are trying to fight it uh, from their own end, focusing on other issues that do not focus on the investigation that Democrats are looking at when it comes to unearthing what fueled the January 6th attack. Well, let me go to caller James in Larkspur. Hi, James. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just, my question is, the where is the sense of integrity? Where is the sense of honor in serving our country? And why are not the representatives in Congress standing up and saying, this is absolutely outrageous? The, you know, Donald Trump, it's docu- journalists documented 30,000 falsehoods, untruths, and outright lies. And it seems like everybody's standing around going, okay, that's not okay. Yeah. Our public officials have to be held accountable based on integrity and transparency. James, and I just, yeah. I just wonder where the outrage is. Well, let me just uh, try to get Ryan Goodman's reaction to what you're saying. But also, basically, Ryan, they're not just not standing up for it. There are Republicans who are running on it, who are running on the big lie. So the danger has not gone away. I I do want to ask you about what you see as the danger of not pursuing accountability or a potential criminal charge in these kinds of things for our democracy, the danger it poses, in your view. So um, I do think there are at least two major dangers, and one of which is the, you know, what has to be understood as a kind of a democratic backsliding, that the rule of law is being eroded in the country, and for us all now to see this strong presentation by the Select Committee of the body of evidence that they've got in terms of Donald J. Trump and then those people surrounding him being responsible for trying to overturn uh, a democratic election to hold on to power in the most illegitimate of ways. Um, if there's not accountability for what for that, then what is there accountability for? It's otherwise a green light for others to try to do the same. And, you know, the other part of this is um, that the Department of Homeland Security, since the Trump administration has been saying, um, because they can now say it, uh, that this level of disinformation and running on the big lie and promoting the big lie fueled domestic violent extremists. It fuels domestic terrorism. It's part of what fueled uh, those folks on January 6th. And I think that's another threat to the country if uh, this isn't, you know, quote unquote, arrested (laughs) in one way and another. We heard so much about the actual physical violence and threats of people who testified as well or challenged the Bing Lai. Well, Ryan Goodman, really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much for having me on. And Claudia, same. Thanks so much for coming on. Great to be with you. Grace Wan produced today's segment. I leave you with this listener thought. My desired outcome, Trump supporters at least start questioning the lie and Trump to face criminal charges. Thank you, as always, listeners, for your thoughts. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.